Hello, welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate Health and Wellness Newsletter Audiocast. I'm your host, Dr. M. This is volume 14, issue number six. This is the week of January 22, 2024. This week, we're going to look at literature review. We're going to look at part two of the antibiotic resistance story, and that's it. The free thoughts this week. Visit the world when and if you can. Observe, listen, and observe some more. The world out there offers a significant educational upgrade over the bubble of our microcosmic experiences of where we find ourselves. Song of the Week, Lucidity by Soen. All right, let's look at the literature. What have we found recently? Number one, psilocybin is showing further signs of great promise in the fight against depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. Psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy has gained a foothold in the mainstream of treatment interventions for treatment-resistant depression and PTSD. Psilocybin comes from a mushroom that has a serotonergic effect on the receptor in the body called 5-HT2A, that is in the human brain. The results of the studies were net positives in reducing major mood disorder symptoms that are known to be long-term in effect. This comes to us from Haikazayin, H-A-I-K-A-Z-I-A, at all in 2023 from the journal Psychological Research. I'm very excited personally to see this therapeutic space expand into traumatized teens and other subsets to see outcome benefits. There's a lot more to be found in this space. Talk therapy, many of their modalities we have, even cognitive behavioral therapy has been wanting to some extent in helping people really unwind major depressive disorder and PTSD. So psychedelic-assisted therapy seems to be potentially the next iteration in learning how to help people disassociate from their burdens of the past, especially if they had significant childhood traumas. Number two, nanoplastics in the research in the journal PNAS. The researchers analyzed bottled water for the presence of nanoplastics and found them to be at 10 to the fifth in volume or 100,000 particles per bottle. Now, these particles are 10 to the minus ninth in size. These are extremely small, which is insanely small when you think about it and capable of getting pretty much anywhere in the body. The study that looked at this was Quian, Q-I-A-N et al. in PNAS in 2023. So for me, this talks about a discussion of what's called bioaccumulation. This is the word we now use to describe low levels of persistent plastic exposure, ingestion or inhalation, and subsequent body tissue accumulation over time. From the journal Nanoparticles, we see from Lai, LAI et al. in 22, the following. Moreover, nanoplastics can cross the blood-brain barrier after intravascular ingestion and accumulate in the brain. A study on nanoplastics obtained through the food chain showed that nanoplastics cross the blood-brain barrier, inducing brain damage in fish. Furthermore, a study using an ex vivo human placental perfusion model of nanoplastics reported that nanoplastics can cross the placental brain barrier, excuse me, the placental barrier through passive diffusion. These findings indicate that nanoplastics can penetrate into important biological barriers, such as the intestinal barrier, blood air, blood air barrier, blood-brain barrier, and the placental barrier, and pose potential, potential adverse effects to people, end quote. 
Nanoplastics destroy cell membranes, including causing apoptosis and macrophage activation to clean up the debris field, leaving localized inflammation. There is further evidence that nanoparticles are taken in by mitochondria and increase reactive oxygen species while decreasing energy production and mitochondrial function. This is a 100% bad all the way around of a biological effect for humans. Injuring mitochondria is the number one way to develop all diseases, especially neurodegenerative types. For me, these studies are really fascinating while they are all insanely frustrating. The end result of these cellular affecting nanoparticles will be inflammation and cellular senescence. We are truly fighting a losing battle between our immune solvency and the external environment onslaught known as chemicals and toxins. Our epigenetic struggle will excuse me, our epigenetic system will struggle to match this exposome change in volume and speed of onset, leaving us genetically at risk for toxin-mediated disease. Number three, more on nanoplastics and nanoparticles. It turns out that the nanoplastics can activate the innate immune system via the NLRP3 inflammasome. This leads to localized inflammation and resolution of the NP, the nanoparticle, in that area. The problem arises in my mind when the NPs are persistent and found in humans with high NLRP3 activity at baseline due to fructose ingestion, processed foods, and many other things we're seeing. The article that looks at this piece is Ali Jackick, Frontiers Immunology, A-L-I-J-A-G-I-C, again in Frontiers in Immunology. I'm struck by the beauty of the NLRP3 inflammasome system during baseline historical exposome surveillance, inflammation, and resolution. It is an elegant system that seems to be at the center of much that we look at, including COVID, preeclampsia, ASD, and much more. Now usher in the emerging research on nanoplastics infiltrating all biological tissues at such tiny sizes, leading to bioaccumulation and chronic innate immune activation, apoptosis, and cellular senescence. I am continually intrigued by the fructose, or starch via polyol pathway to uric acid story, that leads to an LRP3 in fact activation globally as a gasoline source for reducing cellular mitochondrial resistance to the disparate toxicities as they are emerging and increasing over time. Almost like a Patrice Connie style low-level endotoxemia via refined carbohydrates and toxins working in concert to overwhelm the system over time. This recent PNAS paper above is quite disturbing as they found 100,000 nanoparticles per liter of drinking water in the context of this Frontiers paper is a solid mess. Number four, post-exertion muscle fatigue is a common finding in a subgroup of patients with long COVID. A paper in Nature Communications notes that the muscles of these individuals, quote, we show that skeletal muscle structures associated with lower exercise capacity in patients and the local and systemic metabolic disturbances, severe exercise-induced myopathy and tissue infiltration of amyloid-containing deposits in skeletal muscles of patients with long COVID worsen after induction of post-exertional malaise. End quote. Appleman et al., 2024, in Nature Communications. Amyloid is a protein deposited in response to inflammation that is ongoing, i.e. not resolving. This begs the question as to why these specific people cannot resolve the SARS-2 illness? This remains an unanswered question. I lean toward a dysregulated immune system in the face of chronic stress pre-illness with COVID. Number five, sleep timing or one's chronotype is now associated with cardiovascular risk for coronary changes. Quote, self-assessed chronotype was classified as extreme morning, moderate morning, intermediate, moderate evening, or extreme evening. 
10-year risk of first-onset cardiovascular disease was estimated by the systemic coronary risk evaluation. Significant coronary artery calcification, CAC, was present in 29% of the cohort. CAC prevalence increased from extreme morning to extreme evening type, respectively. Frisk et al., 2024, and this was in sleep medicine. Super fascinating. So looks like, based on what they're saying, is that your risk of having heart disease, which is inflammatory-based, increases with those individuals that are night owls. And again, this follows a circadian biology we've talked about many times. We are expected to rise with the morning sun and go to bed earlier when the sun goes down. We are fighting these problems, unfortunately, against our own genetics. This is likely all related to the epigenetic biological changes that we know occur when one is awake at night and we are supposed to be asleep. People are more prone to metabolic and immune dysregulation when they are awake at night. Third shift workers, we know this stuff. Six, gut microbes are linked to dementia. From the journal Brain by Grabucker, G-R-A-B-R-U-C-K-E-R at all 2023, we see the following. Quote, to understand the involvement of Alzheimer's patient gut microbiota in host pathology, physiology and pathology and behavior, we transplanted fecal microbiota from Alzheimer's patients and age-matched healthy controls into microbiota-depleted young adult rats. We found impairments and behaviors reliant on adult hippocampal neurogenesis as essential process for certain memory functions and mood, resulting from Alzheimer's parent, patient transplants. Notably, the severity of impairments correlated with clinical cognitive scores in donor patients. Discrete changes in the rat cecal and hippocampal metabolome were also evident. As hippocampal neurogenesis cannot be measured in living humans, but is modulated by the circulatory systemic environment, we assess the impact of Alzheimer's systemic environment on proxy neurogenesis readouts. Serum from Alzheimer's patients decreased neurogenesis in human cells in vitro and were associated with cognitive scores and key microbial genera. Our findings reveal for the first time that Alzheimer's symptoms can be transferred to a healthy young organism via the gut microbiota, confirming a causal role of gut microbiota in Alzheimer's disease and the hippocampal volume neurogenesis as a converging cellular central process regulating systemic, circulatory, and gut-mediated factors in Alzheimer's, end quote. It's a mouthful, but what it is is basically another study to give us pause in using fecal microbial transplants without thinking through the downstream risks. If you get transplanted with a gut microbiome that is heading down this path, i.e. dementia phenotype, that could go sideways for you in that direction. The other take-home remains that the microbiome is intimately tied to our mental health now and over time. So take care of yours all of the time. Okay, section two, antibiotic resistance, part two. What can we do to stem the tide of this mess? Quote, the rapid emergence of resistant bacteria is occurring worldwide, endangering the efficacy of antibiotics. Implementation of recommended steps, such as adoption of antibiotic stewardship programs, improving diagnosis, tracking and prescribing practices, optimizing therapeutic regimens, and preventing infection transmission are expected to be effective in managing this crisis. Increasing collaboration among concerned stakeholders to establish policies, initiatives, and investments in new agents to battle the antibiotic resistance crisis is also promising. 
Recently approved antibiotic compounds are expected to help stem the crisis, as are novel approaches to the treatment of bacterial infections that are currently being studied. End quote. Ventola 2015, and that was found in the journal Pharmacy and Therapeutics. Okay, so we know this is the world as discussed last week and this week. Antibiotic resistance is growing. We need to be very careful of it. So we really need to understand the do's and don'ts of antibiotic stewardship. So let's list some. Number one, avoid using antibiotics when and where possible. This is critical. We need to have providers only prescribe antibiotics when it's in a bacterial infection state that needs clearance. Consumers of healthcare need to know that pressuring a provider to prescribe antibiotics is not in their best interest or that of their child unless statement number one is met. Unfortunately, this still happens all the time in clinic, as patients are visibly upset when we tell them that the best course of action is rest, sleep, quality nourishment, and time. Unless prescribed by a physician or other licensed provider who believes that the drug is necessary, do not ask for them or use them. Antibiotics are drugs with significant side effects including the most dangerous one, disrupting the natural human microbiome. Do not be afraid to ask your provider whether the antibiotic is actually necessary or can a period of watchful waiting be employed with antibiotics on hand just in case of worsening. It's your child's health we are talking about, and it's the long-term health that is affected by this process. Number two, always throw away antibiotics that are left over from a previous prescription. Using a few doses during a subsequent illness without a full course of treatment, assuming it is necessary at that time, is a recipe for turning bacteria into being trained to become resistant, furthering the problem societally. Three, stay current with treatment trends. For example, 60 to 70% of children over the age of two years will clear a diagnosed bacterial ear infection without antibiotics. Viral upper respiratory infections can last for a few weeks. Discuss these issues with your provider. Ask your provider to check for strep throat via rapid test to prove its presence before treating. There are new, albeit expensive, ways to rapidly test for pathogens in outpatient settings when the cause is in question. Using them can help avoid the use of drugs. Guessing at trick infectious diseases has been proven at hard, uh, uh, a very hard sell at times in the hands of even great clinicians. Four, along the lines of the first one, be careful with non-pediatric professionals and their liberal prescribing habits. We find overuse of antibiotics still rampant in rapid, fast, urgent care type venues. Conventional wisdom is to provide some treatment to keep the consumer happy. I'm not even sure this doesn't come down from on high, the corporate overlords. This is unfortunately bad for this same person in the long run. Short-term happiness is traded for long-term disease risk. And again, I'm not sure everyone is aware that that is a problem. And we need to be aware of this. So check your behaviors on how much you want and ask for an antibiotic. Understand the reasons behind the why and the when and the how. Number five, preventing infections in the first place is critical to avoiding the need to be at risk in the first place. Wash your hands frequently for at least 20 seconds with soap, but especially in any healthcare or food preparation setting. Wear a mask if you are going to be exposed to a sick individual that actually is a N95 type. But again, this is primarily for decreasing your exposure. It's not a panacea. Masks do not stop full transmission. Six, assess whether your child has a food allergy or intolerance. If they have a reaction to a food that causes the body to be inflamed, they are at higher risk for infection, secondary to mucus, and inflamed tissue. 
For example, milk protein intolerance is a very very common problem in America now, especially in our clinic. Children are chronically irritated by the protein milk cake called casein. When they consume it, they have reactions in the body ranging from green diarrhea, eczematous dry skin rashes, reflux, congestion, irritability. The chronic milk exposure causes chronic congestion that plugs up the eustachian tubes that drain the inner ear as well as sending the sinus cavities and as well as seeding the sinus cavities with mucus. This leads to a lovely breeding ground for bacteria to grow. This problem, as with many other reactions, is easily prevented by an elimination diet that avoids the offending food. Name me an animal on earth that drinks milk after it weans from the breast. Milk is not necessary. 7. Try and purchase animal meats that are produced without the use of antibiotics in the feed or for non-illness related uses. Use your buying power to sway the consumer market since animals are a huge source of antibiotic use. 8. Raise awareness among the people in your circle to these issues. Spreading the word will help save many lives down the road when we find out that somebody has an infection with a bug that we can't treat anymore. Could be you. Could be a big problem. All right, that's it for this week. Remember to hug those kids. Have a great day. The information provided in this audio-casted newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only and is not a substitute for advice and or treatment provided by your physician or healthcare professional is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue and does not constitute the provider-patient relationship formation.